One day in July 1893, I met an old friend upon the street. I had not seen him for nearly two years, and I noticed at once he had not prospered since I last saw him. I asked him to accompany me to lunch, and upon inquiry, he told me that his only means of support at that time consisted of what he could earn as a solicitor for the Fidelity Insurance Company of Philadelphia, and he asked me if I could not carry some insurance in his company, to which I replied that I was carrying all I felt able to pay for. I gave him, however, the names of several parties whom he was to visit, some of whom he later insured. I invited him to come to the office and accompany me to lunch whenever he was in that part of the city, and later, at his solicitation, I abandoned the company in which I had been insured, and allowed him to place a policy for me with his company for two reasons. First, that he might be benefited by the premiums I paid. Second, upon his showing me the advantages they offered. Considerably later, having exhausted all my resources so far as finding him customers was concerned, we were standing within the Chamber of Commerce building, Chicago, when Pitizel, just returning from a successful southern lumber trip, came in, and not having seen my friend for quite a while, they talked for some time together, and finally he asked Pitizel if he could not carry some insurance. Pitizel answered that he did not care to do so then. Up to that time, Pitizel's insurance record was as follows. Upon all long trips, his instructions were to take out temporary insurance at the time he bought his transportation ticket or mileage, making the policies in favor of his family, and at my expense. He had occasionally carried yearly accident insurance, and upon one occasion, some regular life insurance in the Washington Life Company. Soon after this meeting with Pitizel, my friend asked me to try and induce him to take some in his company. Pitizel was about to receive several hundred dollars, the greater part of which I knew I would, in a very few days, be wasted, and considering the great help it would be to my friend during the coming winter, I decided to induce Pitizel to insure, telling my friend beforehand my reasons for doing so, and instructing him to place no more insurance than Pitizel would pay cash for at the time. Later, a policy was issued for $10,000, for which a cash premium was paid. This policy differed very materially from one I should have chosen, if any fraud had been anticipated at the time. After this, I do not think insurance was again mentioned between Pitizel and myself for six months. My first intimate acquaintance with Mrs. Pitizel and her children began in the fall of 1893, although I had often seen them prior to that, especially the children, whom I liked and looked upon as remarkably bright when they had come to me from time to time upon errands. At this time, Pitizel had gone to Indiana on some lumber business there among the farmers, and to aid him in establishing a credit, had taken with him some worthless checks to carelessly exhibit among his money, thus having it appear that he was a man of considerable means and worthy of credit in his business. While under the influence of liquor, he either lost or tried to use one of these checks or drafts, resulting in his being arrested. This necessitated my making three special trips to Terre Haute, where his arrest occurred, and during this time, a part of his family being sick, it was also necessary for me to visit them often as well. In November 1893, 
I met Miss Williams by appointment at a hotel, where I made some preliminary arrangements that resulted later, after several more visits, in her accepting collateral security for all her real estate holdings in Texas, they being valueless to her for the reasons previously given. The last of these visits took place in Detroit in December 1893, nearly six months after the death of her sister, since which time I have not personally seen her. At the time of this visit, a final settlement was reached. I told her, after having reached such a settlement, that I was very shortly to be married. This created so severe a scene that she not only threatened my life, but that of my prospective wife as well. These threats ceased only when I told her that I should, upon my return to Chicago, give the authorities the details of the tragedy that had occurred there in July. The next day she seemed as pleasant as usual, and planned her own future course, which consisted in opening a massage establishment in a London hotel, hatched to help her in conducting the enterprise. About the middle of February, I sent to her, from Fort Worth, $1,750, which, when deducted from my previous indebtedness due her, left me still considerably in her debt. This was secured by the Wilmette property the title to which it was agreed she should hold until all was paid. I left Miss Williams in Detroit, apparently well pleased with her business arrangements, and at least passably satisfied that the many other matters between us had been settled. Early in January 1894, I sent Pedicel to Fort Worth, instructing him to sell the real estate there which had been conveyed to Benton T. Lyman, whom Pedicel was to personate it not being safe for him to act in his own name on account of his recent trouble in Terre Haute, Indiana. He did not succeed in readily funding a purchaser, and later in the same month, having been married in the meantime, I joined him there to aid him in his work. I had given Pitisil careful instructions as to his conduct while away, but I found upon reaching Fort Worth that he had not been governed by them. My first duty was to remove him from the boarding place he had chosen to one in a more respectable quarter, but the mischief had already been accomplished, and he was known by that time throughout the town as a liberal, free-and-easy drinking man, who, it was understood, had considerable property. A party owning property adjoining that which we wished to sell had a need of a portion of ours, but would not buy depending upon renting it at a very small figure, as he had been doing heretofore. In order to force him to buy, I directed Pitizel to withdraw his offer and remain wholly away from him, quietly survey our lot, and proceed to excavate a portion of it, having it understood that he was about to erect a large building, covering all of the ground, our neighbor was fully as crafty as ourselves, and not until we had caused elaborate drawings to be prepared by an architect, and some foundation laid encroaching upon the portion he needed, did he conclude to buy, and at a figure at about twice what it was worth. With a portion of this money, the old encumbrance of $1,700 that existed against the property was paid. Then having some tempting offers from prospective tenants, a larger loan was made and the building later nearly completed. While the building was in progress, there came to us a forlorn-looking object, begging for work, and out of charity we gave him some light labor to do. 
He grew stronger as soon as he procured food. Later he confided to me that he had recently been released from serving a ten-year term at a southern prison. I had at first called him Mascot, which name clung to him thereafter, though I think his real name was Caldwell. Early in March, Pitizel came to me one morning to say that the day before, while drunk, he had been induced by some of the disreputable associates he had formed at his former boarding place to marry a woman of doubtful character, an adventuress, some said, and that as soon as he became sober had come to me. He threatened to shoot both the woman and himself. I had him watched carefully for a few days until I had reasoned him out of this idea. A little later, I sent him home to his family in Chicago. He had, in the meantime, lived with this woman, and they were known as Mr. and Mrs. Lyman. Upon reaching Chicago, he did some work there, and in St. Louis, where he afterwards went. He finally met me about May 1st at Denver, where I had gone to prepare papers with which to secure a loan of $16,000 upon this Fort Worth building. I needing his signature to the papers, inasmuch as the property was, and still is, in his fictitious name, Lyman. Upon meeting him in Denver, I wished to proceed at once to the courthouse to have necessary papers acknowledged, but he told me he had, while away, devised a plan where he could not only gain $10,000, but at the same time forever do away with any fear of prosecution or trouble in consequence of his marriage in Fort Worth, a matter which had perpetually worried him. I had times, without number, listened to his visionary schemes for obtaining vast wealth upon a day's notice, usually in connection with some new patent, until such matters had become a joke between us. So I said to him, Well, Colonel Sellers, what is it now? He replied that it was one of my own inventions, and if I would go to the hotel with him, he would tell me of it. He seemed so much in earnest that I, although in a great hurry, went with him. His plan was this. I should say here that several years before, while making a southern lumber trip with him, he had taken up some of the tedious hours of the journey in telling me of his wild gold-mining experiences, and, in reciprocation, I had told him something of my medical experience, including a part of the frustrated insurance scheme. He wished to hire an office in one of the highest buildings in Denver, having it understood that he was to use it as a wholesale book agent's office, that he should buy an awning to protect the room from the sun, and while placing it in position upon the outside of the window, it should appear that he had fallen into the area way below, wishing me to have shipped to him from Chicago or elsewhere, a body which he could use to aid in the fraud. I do not think we talked of the matter to exceed fifteen minutes. He was accustomed to accept my judgment upon matters of importance without much hesitancy. I proceeded to give him several reasons why his plan was not a feasible one principal among which was the fact that, at the present time, insurance companies are too well equipped and too much upon the alert to not detect this kind of fraud, nearly all of them having a core of private detectives. Among other reasons I gave him was one he very well knew, that, theretofore, when I had thought it wise to indulge in business transactions that were not strictly legitimate, 
I had always insisted upon two conditions being carried out. First, that such proceedings should be outside the regular beaten track followed by where ordinary disreputable schemers, for in consequence thereof those engaged in them were closely watched. Second, that all such acts should stop short of anything that was punishable by either a large fine or imprisonment. There was another reason I had for not entering into this fraud at that time. If no others had existed, I did not tell him of it, namely, that during the previous years he had been worth to me much more than $10,000 per year, and I could not afford to have him place himself in such a position as would necessarily be the cause, if this were carried out where I could not further use him. His idea in regard to this had been to go to South America and later have his family join him there. Having dismissed the matter, I went on with my real estate work, and as soon as the papers were executed, returned to Fort Worth, Pitt is still going back to St. Louis to attend to some work there. Upon reaching Fort Worth, I found that some to whom money was owing had filed mechanics and furnishers' liens against the property, and this so alarmed the party who was to have made the large loan that he withdrew from his agreement, and this resulted in a large number of other creditors becoming alarmed, some two or three proposing to cause my arrest for having obtained the material for the building under false pretenses of payment. I had never been arrested, and I had the same horror of it that I would of being shot. Especially terrible seemed the methods prevalent in the South, where I had seen, from time to time, convicts chained together, with hardly any clothing, and if I could believe the reports our mascot had given us, with less food and more inhuman treatment than was accorded the slaves of that region forty years ago. I therefore raised what money I could, paying all of it, save two hundred dollars, to the poorer laborers who had worked for me, and immediately left the city, intending to secure the loan in St. Louis or Chicago. From time to time, during my residence in Fort Worth, I had bought from different parties six good horses, paying for them, it is true, for the most part, with notes guaranteed by Lyman as the owner of the real estate there. I make no claim that these notes have been paid, but I do claim that the transactions were lawful, that no mortgage or any other encumbrance existed against any of the horses, but they were, however, subject to attachment by any parties whom I was owing, and to avoid this I instructed Mascot to take them to Denison, Texas, and ship them there to St. Louis. Upon reaching Denison, he shipped five of the horses, but failed to accompany them himself or send $300 worth of other material, including much of my clothing, one carriage, a watch I had loaned him, and $80 cash given him to pay the freight upon the stock. Nor did I hear from him again until July 1895, when, as an inmate of an Arkansas prison, he was willing in exchange for his liberty to tell of matters of which he could not have known even had they existed. After reaching St. Louis, I immediately tried to negotiate the loan I had failed to secure in the South. Pitizel was feeling much annoyed at my failure there, for he had expected a rather more liberal payment therefrom than he had received during the few preceding months, owing to the fact that while he had been in Texas, it had been necessary, in order to appear that he was the owner there, that he should carry the bank account in his name and before he had known it, 
during his drunkenness, he had been robbed little by little of nearly a thousand dollars. Therefore, when I told him we should be short of money for some time longer, he again advocated the insurance scheme, saying that it could be carried out in the Southern Lumber Co. He felt sure, and finally, against my better judgment, I told him we would take a trip to the region he had spoken of, partly upon lumber business and partly to look over the ground in connection with the insurance work. He was as pleased as a child, and all his morose feelings vanished at once. We first went down to the Mississippi River to visit a lumber tract that had been offered to me the year before upon very easy terms, hoping to buy it, using some Chicago securities as payment, and by selling it once to raise the money we so much needed at Fort Worth. We found upon reaching our destinations that this track had been sold. We then went east to the Tom Bigby River in search of another similar tract, and here Pittisle wished to have it appear that while he was traveling upon horseback through the extensive swamps, he had met his death accidentally, or had been killed for what money he was supposed to have carried. He was known in that locality under his own name, having transacted a number of legitimate lumber deals there the year before. After wandering with Pittisle for several days through those swamps, being eaten by fleas and terrified by snakes, he walking ahead, he said, to drive them away, but as I later found, to escape their anger by passing out of their reach, leaving them for me to contend with. I flatly refused to go farther with the scheme, but told him instead that I would interest some of the planters in a canning factory. With the machinery which I was able to furnish from Chicago, I felt sure that, before sixty days, we could realize fifteen thousand dollars in cash and lumber therefrom. He would not hear to it, however, and opposed me more strongly than I had ever known him to do previously. He told me that at a time he was liable to arrest in Kansas, in Terre Haute, Indiana, and Fort Worth, Texas, and that since his domestic trouble some years before in Chicago, he had cared less than ever, and had been determined ever since he left Texas, where he drank more heavily than before, which also worried him, that he would leave the country, and now, if he could not do so, he would, upon my refusal to go on, go through with his scheme alone. His words were, I can furnish a body, and the way I feel now, I do not care how quickly I do it. Seeing how downhearted he was, I complained no more, but talked with him of other things, and finally told him that I would next day go to Mobile, and if I could procure a suitable body there, would return with it. If not, I should go direct from Mobile to St. Louis, where he must join me, and, after doing some work there, we would go to Chicago and organize a company among certain lumber firms we knew, and return to South later and make what money we could by exchanging this stock and machinery for the canning factory into lumber and other products. I therefore left him, as he supposed, to go to Mobile. This I did not do, and have never been in that city in my life. I returned at once to St. Louis, and, after a little delay, wrote to Pittisle, it had been impossible to obtain what I needed south, and for him to join me at once. Nearly two weeks' delay occurred before he came. His wife had been receiving letters from him that he was sick during this time. Later, after his death, 
I learned that upon receiving my letter that I could not do any more in the insurance matter, he had made an effort to take his own life at the hotel of Henry Rogers at Perkinsville, Alabama, and for days, as a result of this ineffectual attempt, he was sick there, as he was later at the Gilmore House at Columbus, Mississippi. As soon as I reached St. Louis, I found that all efforts towards securing a loan there were useless, and being nearly out of money, owing to my having paid so much before leaving Fort Worth, I had to look sharply about for some immediate source of revenue. I finally bought and took possession of a drug store in that city, paying for it with notes secured by a Chattel mortgage and some other securities. Owing to the negligence of the firm of whom I bought, this mortgage was not recorded, and upon Pittisill reaching the city, I sold to him all my right, title, and interest, this being the wording of the bill of sale, in the store, which he immediately mortgaged for a considerable sum. For this transaction I was arrested and confined in the St. Louis jail for several days until, although I perhaps could, by a legal fight, have shown that I had the right to sell the store under these circumstances. It became clear to me that it was safer to settle the matter, which was done. My arrest occurred on a Saturday evening, and from then until Monday morning I was confined in the receiving portion of the jail, below the level of the street, and these few hours of my first imprisonment were far more trying to me than my subsequent experiences of like nature have been. Here, all through that long, hot Sunday, all classes of prisoners, both male and female, were brought together and allowed to indulge in the most filthy and obscene talk. And, at the open windows, opening directly upon the sidewalk, all day and far into the night a crowd was standing, more than half of whom were tiny children, eagerly drinking in each word that was said. The next morning I had handcuffs placed upon my wrists, and was taken into court and later into the jail proper, where better discipline was enforced. Here I was consigned to a very small iron cage. I know no better name for it. One of about three hundred, ranged tier above tier around a large area in which all, or nearly all, the prisoners are allowed to exercise together during certain hours of the day. Here were to be seen many noted criminals, who were soon pointed out to me as, This is so-and-so, who is to be hung upon such a date. About thirty murderers, one of whom was the prison barber, who, if you paid him ten cents, would shave you with a very dull razor, while if you paid him more, he would use a sharp one. And as I sat in his chair, I could not help thinking that whichever one he used was plenty sharp enough for him to commit one more murder with, if he chose, and I therefore directed him to use his sharpest razor at a price above his own figure very much as I would have held out a tempting piece of meat to a vicious dog which I feared was about to bite me. Or, that is the notorious forger or confidence man, as the case might be. Among others was one, a noted train robber then serving an eighteen years sentence, and who a short time previously had become more notorious by a nearly successful attempt at escape from the prison. He is a young man whom, to meet upon the street, one would suppose to be a bright mechanic or farmer. He is very intelligent, and I took much interest in talking with him. He told me of the case that had resulted in his arrest, of his subsequent trial, 
and remarked that blank and blank in St. Louis were his attorneys, to which I replied that but for the fact of the senior members of the firm being absent on a vacation, they would have been my attorneys as well. I having first sent for them, and finding this to be the case, had employed Judge Harvey instead. He afterwards asked me if, upon leaving the prison, I could not contribute three hundred dollars, which, together with some other money he could obtain, would give him his liberty by bribing one of the keepers, making a claim that he had successfully done so before. My answer was, at the present time, I had less ready money than had been the case for years previously, owing to my having invested so much in the South. I told him if I could arrange to aid him later, I would do so, but I made no engagement with him to furnish me with an attorney for the insurance work as I had been claimed, for I was already acquainted with the firm. The balance of my short stay in this prison was taken up by my reading Les Miserables, a peculiarly interesting volume to me under the circumstances, and I judge it was to all prisoners who cared for reading, as was evidenced by the condition of the book itself, which I obtained from the prison library. I was also entertained by watching a huge negro being prepared to meet his death by hanging, and having alternately administered to him spiritual consolation from his confessors, large quantities of cigars to smoke, food to eat, and liquor or beer to drink. A so-called death watch was kept also, but not so stringent, but that he was allowed to go alone to the front of the compartments occupied by his favorite companions, and talk at some length with them. Next morning, upon looking from my latticed window across the courtyard, I saw him meet his death upon the gallows in the presence of a large and morbidly curious crowd of people. If I had been in need of any warning to deter me from almost immediately placing myself in a similar position, I know of no stronger one that I could have received than to witness this man's death struggles, to see the crowd making light of it, and almost before he was dead quarreling to possess small portions of the rope which sent his soul hence, and, I think, of his clothes. Gruesome relics they were, indeed. Upon the day I was liberated from this place of confinement, I visited first my own attorney, and later blank and blank, in the same street, at which time the following conversation took place. Entering the office, and having explained who I was, I said, I have called on you to perhaps make some arrangements that will aid in securing the liberty of your client. To which one of the firm to whom I spoke replied, I guess you have made a mistake in the office. I know nothing in regard to the matter. I said, I am sure I have made no mistake in the office, and furthermore have seen either you or your brother talking to him at the prison. However, my visit to you was to aid your client, and of no immediate value to me, and I have no desire to force the recognition of your client upon you, and will therefore bid you good day. Upon my withdrawing to the door, he followed me and said, Wait a moment. I will go down to the prison and see what my client means. You come here again shortly. I replied that I should be in Judge Harvey's office, and upon his return he could call there if he wished to talk further with me. I would then accompany him to his office, 
He did call for me, and upon reaching his private office, was willing and ready to talk. Our conversations resulted in my placing in his hands for collection nearly $500 worth of good accounts, authorizing him to apply $300 of the proceeds to the robber's use. I also gave him my Chicago address in case he wished to write me. As I was leaving his office, he said, My client wished me to ask you, if he succeeds in gaining his liberty, if you will aid him in a certain piece of bank work he wishes to do. I replied that it was wholly out of my line, and I should be of no more service to him in such work than a dead man. Moreover, my recent imprisonment had showed me the necessity of being even more careful to avoid laying myself liable to arrest in the future, but that I would furnish the chloroform and nitroglycerin he needed upon my arrival in Chicago, and have it placed in a safe place with a suit of clothes and other articles we had planned during our interview, and possibly might aid him later in the disposing of certain bonds and stocks he expected to gain possession of but there would be ample time to plan for that after he gained his liberty, for which I would watch the papers closely. Upon this I left his office and started for Chicago the same evening, where I had previously sent Pitizel to commence arrangements among the lumbermen whom he knew for the formation of the stock company before mentioned. I reached Chicago August 1, 1894, and upon calling upon my attorney there and also my agent, both assured me that it was dangerous for me to stay in Chicago, as there were then Fort Worth parties there looking for me, and forming an alliance with some persons whom I was owing to cause my arrest, and thereby force me to procure the money due them. My attorney instructed me to go elsewhere if I thought sufficient money could be made to satisfy these debts and organize my company, and upon my asking him where I should go, he told me, that either New York or New Jersey were favorable states, in which to organize companies to do business elsewhere. Having other business in New York, I decided to go there, though under a different name, lest the granting of a charter to a company of which I was an officer should, by being published, be noticed by the Fort Worth parties. I suggested to Pitizel that he should finish some patents, one of which I wished to use in this company, and it was later decided that he should go with me to New York to act as one of the incorporators and to work upon his patents in some small shop he was to hire for the purpose. Before leaving Chicago, he reminded me that his insurance premium would be due before our return and wished me to give him the money to pay it before he went away, remarking that he still thought I would be glad to fall back upon this plan of getting money after my company had failed me. I told him that, owing to the stringency of our money matters, I had allowed my own insurance to lapse and wished he would do the same. He was not willing to do this, advancing, besides the reason already given, that while it was safe for me to allow my insurance to lapse, as I had other things in which to protect those dependent upon me in case of my death, he had little or nothing. He also knew that I had collected a considerable sum of money since coming to Chicago, and could, if necessary, give him what was needed. I finally settled the matter to his satisfaction in the following manner. Upon the day his insurance expired, I was to give him sufficient money to take out a three-months accident policy for $5,000. 
It was supposed he, at that time, carried a thousand dollars of the same kind of insurance, and I agreed to be personally responsible to his family to the extent of four thousand dollars in case he died, thus aggregating the sum of ten thousand dollars. He was satisfied with this, it being agreed that at the end of three months, when our money matters were in a more flourishing condition, his regular insurance should be renewed. During our trip to New York, in my talk with him, not having had much opportunity to plan and hold genial conversation together since he left Fort Worth months before, I noticed that he was not as pleasant as usual, was more inclined to sit by himself and smoke and think and frown and worry. I spoke to him of it and asked him if he had encountered any new trouble at home, to which he answered that he had not. We reached New York about August 5th, I think. I went to the Astor House, and he secured a boarding place near 33rd Street. I at once commenced to look about for some small space in a shop where he could carry on his work. Up to this time, since I had sent Miss Williams the various sums aggregating $1,500 from Texas during the preceding winter, I had received only two letters from her, both forwarded to me from New York through a friend in Denver, who had acted as my agent in the matter. About the time I left Fort Worth, I had written her asking that she send me $600. I found this amount awaiting me at a New York and Bank of England notes, which I later converted into United States currency at Drexel & Co. in Philadelphia and in New York. For the first few days of my stay in New York, I was busy visiting several large machinery stores and in doing some other work pertaining to my company's business of years before. Upon the morning of the 9th of August, Pittisel reminded me that his insurance expired that day and requested that I aid him in placing his temporary insurance. I had been waiting for him to make this announcement. He had a very valuable, undeveloped patent, nearly finished, a machine for testing eggs, which I wished to use at once. I therefore said to him, Suppose I pay you $500 in cash for your share of the new patent, I, by previous contract, already owned one half of it. Then you can use the money as you choose, both for insurance and other matters. He answered that he ought not take less than a thousand dollars. Finally, I gave him six hundred dollars for it, and upon asking me which he should do, retain his old insurance or take out the new, I at once advised him to retain the old, for two reasons. First, it would help my old friend again. Second, if he took the third insurance, long before the expiration of that time, his money would have been blown away, and I should feel obliged to give him more. He then said, I will go and telegraph the company in Chicago, and see if they will keep my insurance in force until the money can reach them. I said, wire them the money instead. This was apparently a new idea to him. For understanding it, he not only wired what was due, but also a small amount to St. Louis to his wife. I, as usual, cautioned him to be careful of the rest of the money, and make it last as long as he could. Besides this, I had done all I could to cheer him up and get him out of the morbid condition he had been in, and he voluntarily promised that for the following thirty days he would not drink liquor. 
He told me afterwards that so hard did he try to keep his promise after I left him in New York that he went to the post office there and sent by registered letter to B.F. Perry. Footnote. The name he had assumed for the purpose of aiding me to organize our company. End footnote. In Philadelphia, nearly all the money he had, so as to place himself beyond temptation for the first hard days of his struggle. At this time, I had come to Philadelphia to meet my wife, to do some business with the Link Belt Engineering Company, with some stationers, and with the Pennsylvania Railroad, all of whom were using a patent in which I was interested. Upon reaching Philadelphia, I found that this and other work would detain me some time. And not knowing of Pittisel's precaution already taken, and fearing lest he should become drunk in New York, I wrote to him to come here. This he did, and, deciding to make our headquarters here, I hired some rooms for my wife and myself. He immediately commenced to look about for a shop in which to do his work. My wife was taken seriously ill about this time, and continued so during the remainder of our stay in Philadelphia. I was not able to be away from the house more than a few hours at a time, and therefore did not see as much of Pittisel as I otherwise should. About the middle of August, he told me he had hired an entire house at 1316 Callowhill Street, it being little more expensive than a shop, that he had met another patent man who had promised to pay off a part of the rent, remarking at the same time that when I got ready to help him in what he wished to do, he would buy out the other man's business or move elsewhere, and if I perfected my company and went south to unload it, he if he could make any money in his patent exchange, would have his family come to Philadelphia for the winter, as under the name of Perry he did not fear trouble. I did not have anything to do with the leasing of the house, nor was I in it to exceed four times prior to the day before his death. Upon Saturday, September 1st, I called on him to execute some patent papers to send to Washington, and at this time he certainly was doing a good business. During the time I was there, no less than 20 customers called, some of them being agents he was supplying with certain washing and cleaning compounds that he manufactured. He had also surrounded himself with a great number of models of patents he was trying to sell for other parties on commission. So busy was he that after waiting patiently for a long time, I told him I would go to my house and would return next day to execute the work he wished to do. Just before leaving, he asked me to lend him... 30 or $35, saying he wished to use it to pay his rent that was then due and to place some advertisements in the next day's papers, explaining to me that all his money was in two large bills, which he did not wish to change until necessary, as, if once broken, he feared he would spend them faster. I laughingly said to him, Ben, are you sure they're not spent already? He answered, Oh, no, I have them placed away safely upstairs. I can go up and get them if you want me to. And then started as if to do so. I gave him the money, saying that I did not require him to verify his statement. That evening, he came to my place of residence at about 8.30. I noticed at once that he had been drinking and spoke to him of it, though not in anger, as it had always been my custom to wait until he became sober before chiding him. He told me that he had received word that one of his children was sick, 
and it might become necessary for him to go home. I asked him which child it was, and also told him he had better telegraph and instruct his wife to wire him if she thought it was necessary for him to go. He then spoke of leaving his business, and asked me what he should do about it if the man he was expecting to take an interest with him did not come at once. I told him I thought it best for him to select the most trustworthy of his agents to leave in the office for a few days, reminding him that I had to go to St. Louis upon some legal business early in the week, and therefore could not aid him. I then bade him good night, telling him I had to go to the market nearby before it should be closed. He said he would go with me. We waited at the market while I made my purchases, and returned to me almost without speaking. I then again said, Good night. He said, Can't you come out again? I want to see you. I told him as my wife was not well, I could not very well be absent longer, attributing his unusual request to having been drinking. I also reminded him that I was to see him early the next day. He said in reply, Then come out a moment now, and I will go home. I did so. And he said, You will have to let me have some money in case I have to go to St. Louis. I said, That will hardly be necessary. Use what you have, and if the child dies or other unforeseen expense arises, I shall be in St. Louis during the week and can then see to it. He replied, Well, I will have to tell you, I have not got any money save what you gave to me today and I have used part of that for liquor instead of paying my rent with it. I said, Ben, this makes over $1,600 you have wasted in debauchery and drink within the last seven months while your family have needed it. I am done. I told you in Fort Worth if it occurred again I should settle our business affairs, and therefore you would have to care for yourself. I don't want to talk with you tonight, but tomorrow I will go to your house, and I want to settle up not only the patent work, as we had intended, but all our other affairs, and in the future, if I can spare any money, it will be given to your family instead of you. But I will go to see them upon my arrival in St. Louis, and will, if the child is dangerously sick, send you money to go home with. He said they had no money then to live on. I said, if I find this to be so, I will give them some. It will not be the first time I have done so, and far in excess of what would have come to them had you been working elsewhere. For your own part, you will have to keep sober here in Philadelphia in order to make a living, which I know you can do if you try. He was crying at the time. He then asked me if I would not help him to carry out the insurance work, having it appear he had been robbed there in the Collow Hill Street House. I replied that inasmuch as he was persisting in drinking, it would not be a month after it was carried out before he told someone of it. He said, You are in earnest. You will not help me any more. I can do nothing alone. I replied, I am in earnest, and will talk it all over with you tomorrow, and plan as best we can for the family and again bade him good night. As he reluctantly started away, I asked him to promise me not to drink again that evening, and to go at once to his home and to bed. 
He promised to do this after first going again to the telegraph office to see if there were any messages for him. He then left me, and that was the last time I ever saw him alive. I wish to say, however, that while I thought it wise and for his advantage for him to suppose he had got to care for himself in the future, I had no intention of abandoning him, if for no other reason than that he was too valuable a man, even with his failings taken into consideration, for me to dispense with. I should have gone through a form of settlement with him the next day, and upon my return from St. Louis, if I found him sober, have gone on as before. The next morning I went to the Collow Hill Street House, reaching there about eleven o'clock, entering with a key he had given me some weeks before to use if I came there in his absence. I found no one in the front portion of the house, and passed back into the kitchen. Finding that also deserted, I went to the stairway and called him by name. Receiving no answer, I went up the stairs so that I could look into the room where he slept. He was not there, and I was much worried, thinking that, instead of coming home as he had promised, he had gone about the city and perhaps been arrested. Upon returning to the kitchen, however, I noticed there were evidences of a fire having recently been built in the stove, and therefore did not think more of the matter, concluding that he had gone to the post office or telegraph office. I then left the house, but before doing so, I placed a chair in a narrow passageway at the end of the counter, to denote to him, if he returned before I did, that I had been there. I went to the mercantile library and read the foreign papers for about an hour, went to a place on 11th Street where I had a box for my private mail, and then, buying a Philadelphia Sunday paper, I returned to the Callow Hill Street house, entering as before. The chair was as I had left it. I sat down for a few minutes to read, then went into the kitchen and rekindled the fire, so that he could prepare us a light lunch as soon as he returned, while I was making up the necessary papers. The fire soon making the lower rooms uncomfortably warm, I went up the stairs and lay down upon his bed, and resumed the reading of the paper. While there, I noticed an unusual odor and finally got up. Upon going into the adjoining room, I found perhaps two dozen small bottles containing a certain cleaning fluid upon the mantel, some of which were uncorked. This fluid contained some chloroform, ammonia, and benzene, among other ingredients, all being of a volatile nature. I don't know how long I stayed there, nor what time it was when I finally thought it best to go home, and then I went downstairs to his desk to write him a note. There among the paper I found a note written in a cipher we sometimes used, which read, Get letter in bottle in cupboard, or words to that effect. This note being one that no one could read without my aid, I carried it in the small watch pocket of my pantaloons, until, in Toronto, having a new suit of clothing made, from which my tailor had omitted such a pocket, I placed the note in a tin box of papers, that was later taken by the authorities. The note is now, or should be, in their hands. I went to the kitchen cupboard, which was the only one I had noticed in the house, and there I found a whiskey flask, within which I could see some paper. To get at it, I quickly broke the bottle, and upon opening the letter I read, I am going to kill myself if I can do it. You will find me upstairs. I am worth more dead than alive.
I did not wait to finish the letter at that time, but went hurriedly upstairs. The only place on the second floor I had not occasion to visit that morning was a small room under the stairway, and, looking into it, I found it empty. I then ran up this stairway to the third story, a portion of the house I had never before been in. It consisted of two low, small rooms, each having one small window. The door to one of these rooms was open. I instinctively turned to the room that was closed. Thrusting open the door and stepping within, I saw Pitizel lying upon the floor. I rushed to him, but before I had remained longer than to remove a large towel that was wrapped around his head, and not having time to find if he were alive, I was forced, owing to the overpowering odor of chloroform, together with the shock of coming upon him so suddenly and in such a condition, to leave the room, falling upon my knees and crawling a portion of the way until I finally reached the window in the adjoining room, which I opened and in a few minutes had recovered myself sufficiently to return to the room where Pitizel lay, but again was forced to leave before I could make a satisfactory examination. This time I had opened the window in this room as well, and presently was able to ascertain that he was dead. I then went to the hallway and sat down upon the stairs. I do not know how long I sat there, nor what I thought in the meantime. I had not yet wholly recovered from the effects of the chloroform and was dazed. This was not due to having come suddenly upon a dead body, for my medical experience of years before had rendered me accustomed to disagreeable sights and scenes. But the man had been to me far more than an ordinary employee, one whom, although most of our tastes were dissimilar, I had always liked and had fewer disagreements with than would likely have been the case had he been my own brother and to come upon him thus had unmanned me. I know the thought never came to me while sitting there that it might be dangerous for my own safety, the street door being then unlocked. After a time I returned to the room and made a careful examination. He lay upon his back, his lower limbs fully extended, one arm folded upon his chest, the other thrown out at his side. His head was slightly raised by means of a coarse-colored blanket, closely folded. He was fully dressed, except his coat and vest which hung on a chair beside him. The pockets of his trousers were turned inside out, and in the waistband was a letter within an envelope addressed. C.A.P. Footnote. Mrs. Pittisel's initials. End footnote. If asked to express an absolutely true opinion as to how long he had been dead, I should say not more than six hours. Upon the chair was a large gallon bottle laying upon its side, so arranged that it would nearly empty itself, it being held in position upon one side by a hammer and upon the other by a small block of wood. From the bottle, and connected thereto by a perforated cork in which an ordinary quill toothpick had been inserted, there trailed a long piece of small rubber tubing, terminating at its free end in the towel I had removed upon first entering the room. The tube was constricted midway by a piece of cord tied about it, so that the flow of liquid would be slow. Owing to the time that had elapsed after his death, all the chloroform that could escape from the bottle, in the position in which it lay, had passed through the tube, filling his mouth and as I later learned from the coroner's physician, 
his stomach as well. This one fact alone being sufficient to prove any scientific person, or physician at least, that anyone having a medical training would not, if obliged to use chloroform for such a purpose, carry it to such an extent if he wished to appear later, that the man died as a result of inhaling the vaporous fumes of chloroform and benzene that had exploded in a bottle held in the victim's hands. The excess of liquid had then run out upon the floor and on the blanket underneath his head. The only other articles in the room besides those already enumerated were some small pocket belongings, a knife, a memoranda book, matchbox containing some of our patent stamps, and perhaps twenty small coins. All these were placed on the chair beside the bottle. Upon the window-sill was a small handful of tacks with which he had fastened some newspapers upon the sash in lieu of a curtain. By this time, owing to the excoriate effect of the chloroform, his face had become somewhat discolored, and I went to the rooms below and procured a wet towel, and after covering the face with it, I started down the stairs fully intended to call in some of the neighbors. Then came the thought that, instead of filling the house with a crowd of curious people, it would be better to go direct to the coroner. I know this thought was in my mind as I passed down the stairway, for I distinctly remember wondering in what part of the city the coroner's office was located, whether at the city hall or elsewhere, and if it would be open on Sunday. Reaching the kitchen, I picked up the letter, which, in my haste, I had let fall before going up the stairs in search of him. The substance of the letter, beside that already given, was that he had tried to take his life in Mississippi during the previous June, and now, with his drinking habit growing so much stronger day by day, he could not hope to make a living without my aid. He wished me to so arrange his body in one of two ways, that it would appear that his death had been either accidental, or that he had been attacked by burglars and killed, giving the details of how I was to carry out either course. First, that his family should not at present know of his death. Footnote. Before going to Denver, when he had felt so sure of carrying out the plan, I afterwards learned that he had spoken to one of his family about his sudden disappearance, at any time not necessitating them to worry. Second, that the children should never know that he had committed suicide. This he also repeated in the letter left for his wife. That the insurance money should be used to place the Fort Worth building in an earning condition, and that I should exchange some Chicago property we owed for some house in a city with good school advantages. That none of the money should be so placed that relatives could borrow it away from his wife. He spoke of our close connection for years, and that he could depend upon my aiding him, now and in the future, ending his directions with the words, Do enough with me, so there won't be any slip-up on the insurance. I shan't feel it. The letter was poorly written, and it took me some minutes to decipher it, and upon finishing it, I sat down for a time and reread parts of it. This gave me time to consider my own position, and as soon as it came to my mind, but before I had decided to carry out his instructions, I went to the front office and locked the street door. The thought that troubled me at most at this time was that under no conditions, whether the insurance part was carried out or not, was I the one to discover his dead body. 
I was here in Philadelphia under an assumed name. A few years earlier, I had stopped at some hotels and met people under the name of Holmes. Some years before that, I had done business here under still another name, and at another time, earlier yet, I had visited relatives here under my true name. And now, at this time, to be called as a witness before a coroner's jury would almost certainly cause me to be identified by someone, and, if under the name of Holmes, it was more than likely to be seen in the papers by some Fort Worth people, and would probably result in my arrest upon the charges there and my arrest at this time, I was satisfied would mean death to my wife. Again, I had an engagement in St. Louis for the following Thursday morning, to fail to keep which would result in the loss of a considerable sum of money, and also prove a great source of annoyance to my attorney, who was personally responsible for my appearance there. Besides this, Pittisle was dead. Nothing I could do here would aid him. While in St. Louis, I could be of the utmost benefit to his family, by forestalling the announcement of his death reaching them through the newspapers, by seeing them personally, and also caring for the child that was sick, if need be. This portion of the matter was settled in my mind at once. Then came the question whether I should do anything to aid in the deception of the insurance matter, or simply remove the letter he had written to his wife, lest it contain matters that should not be made public and go away. One of his plans I did not entertain for a moment, the one involving striking him upon the head severely enough to crush his skull. Had my own life depended upon it, I could not have forced myself to strike his dead body, even had I been sure there was no suicide clause in his insurance policy. I should have preferred to have told his family at once of his death, contrary to his wishes, in preference of doing anything to mislead the authorities, involving, as it necessarily must, some mutilation of the body." I had never seen the policy, but from my friend the insurance agent's statement that it was similar to mine, I judged it contained such a clause. Nor did I know whether or not the suicide clause was inoperative in Pennsylvania, as it is in many other states. All these things I most certainly should have found out previously, if I had been intending to immediately carry out the fraud. After considerable deliberation, I went to the room in the second story that he had partially prepared, uncorked the small bottles I had previously found there, and also found the pipe he had filled with tobacco, the top of which was slightly burned, as though he had just lighted it before his accident occurred. He did this part of the work previous to his death, knowing that I did not smoke or knew little of filling pipes intelligently enough to deceive anyone. Having placed the room in the condition necessary, breaking the large bottle, placing pipe upon the floor, etc., I moved his body as carefully as possible to the second-story room. I found that the chloroform had given the side of the face and neck and part of the chest quite the appearance of having been burned, and this made my task the easier, although it seemed terrible enough in any event. At last I forced myself to burn the clothing upon one side of the body, smothering the flames when they reached the flesh, and in this way produced partially successful results, then hastily gathering together several small articles that I wished to take away with me, I placed the room somewhat in order, and after going again to the room where he lay to see him, as I then supposed for the last time, 
I at once left the house, disguising myself to some extent by wearing one of his hats, for I had been fully alive to the necessity of care after I had first had time to think of the matter. Among the things taken from the house was a bottle of chloroform, which he had previously bought in Philadelphia, and prepared to send to Chicago to be placed with the clothing and other things for Hedgepeth's use. In going out of the house, I was careful to leave the door both unlocked and open, in order to call attention to the condition of affairs within as soon as possible. Upon reaching the more pure air of the street, I was seized with a feeling of nausea and dizziness, resulting probably as an after-effect of the chloroform-laden air within. I knew my general appearance must have been that of an intoxicated person. To become relieved of this feeling somewhat if possible, I decided to walk a portion of the distance to my residence, and while doing so decided that it was best, my wife being well enough, to leave Philadelphia at once, thinking that Pitizel had no doubt spoken to me of some of his newly made friends, and perhaps told them where I lived. I, therefore, went to the Broad Street station and ascertained that a train would leave in half an hour. So I know now that I left the Caldwell Street house at about 3.45 o'clock, as the train referred to was the regular 4.30 western train. I found that another train left for the west at 10.25 p.m., and although my wife was not able to do so, I took her as carefully as I could to this train and left at that hour. I have often since that day tried to analyze the feelings which I had at the time of Pitisel's death. I felt it to be a terrible matter, and certainly could not have deplored it more had he been a relative, but I did not then, nor have I since, felt the great horror concerning it that I experienced at the time of Nanny Williams' death in Chicago, which was wholly unprovoked, and for which I felt that I was the indirect cause, while, in this case, his death occurred as the result of his own premeditation, in consequence of his having allowed himself to slowly drift into pernicious habits for which he was more than anyone else to blame. Upon reaching Indianapolis, I was occupied until Wednesday noon, September 5th, in arranging comfortable quarters for my wife, at which time I started for St. Louis, reaching that city about 7 p.m., having bought upon the train a St. Louis Globe Democrat, giving in a Philadelphia dispatch an account of the finding of Pittisel's, Perry's, body in the Callow Hill Street House upon the previous day. End of Section 8